The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, May the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we're going to be trying to untangle some of the real issues and political challenges which the country faces in light of the climate crisis. But first, Deputy Editor Fia Kelly is here for a final roundup of what's happening on the European and local election campaigns with less than two days, Fia, to go until polling stations open. And we'll be discussing climate crisis later, but any sign of this green bump, green surge that opinion polls showed at the weekend? Uh, yeah, two opinion polls. The weekend, so the Times and the Business Post both had the Green Party rising by about four percent, uh, five percent, and the Green Party themselves are quite confident that will be reflected on polling day. They say that they are confident they will pick up local authority seats. First of all, in areas of Dublin such as Dunleary, they believe they can get a seat in every ward there. But they also are expecting that there will be pockets of the country they will pick up council seats where they didn't have representation before. So it will allow them to say this is a national concern rather than a middle-class Dublin concern, which on the face of it, if you looked at the opinion polls, dropping support for Fine Gael, transferred to the Green Party. On the face of it, it looked like middle-class Dublin moving from Fine Gael to the Greens. But Eamon Ryan's hope is that come Friday or whenever it's counted, could be Saturday, Sunday, the way the count is looking at this stage, that they will be able to say, yes, we are on the rise, but we're on the rise all over the country. And that will give them a network to build for a general election. And then the figures in the Sunday Business Post for Kieran Cuff were quite good, showed him in contention to win one of those four uh, MEP seats in Dublin. And I think the more interesting aspect of that compared to our own poll, our own poll had Alex White and Kieran Cuff matched quite evenly. This showed Kieran Cuff opening the lead over Alex so White. So there's a, sense of, a bit of a sense of momentum for the Greens there in this final stretch. There is a bit of a sense of momentum and... Um, Everybody in all the parties is acknowledging that there is a momentum for the Greens, that it's coming up as an issue in the doorsteps, climate. They're not quite sure if that will carry over into the general election. They think it's a bit of a middle class, uh, you know, dalliance with their conscience uh, in a second order election. But they do acknowledge that there is a push for the Greens. I think Eamon Ryan's target is to get to 25 council seats. They currently have 12. He thinks they can get three MEP seats. I think that's a bit optimistic. The best bet is Kieran Cuff in Dublin. Grace O'Sullivan polling better at the weekend than she was in our initial poll in Ireland South and Saoirse McHugh, who is their candidate Middles North West, not polling quite well, but did very well in the debate last night. Yeah, speaking of the debate, I mean, I didn't see last night's debate, which was the final of three debates on RT. I did see more or less most of the other two for Ireland South and, and for Dublin. What was last night's one like? Last night's one was actually quite a lively debate. I think the first debate in RT was the worst of all. It was quite dull and quite boring. Um, last night's was, was lively enough. Um, you had a lineup that included Peter Casey, uh, Marie McGuinness, who, interestingly, she was out because Fine Gael are putting a huge uh, effort to get Marie Walsh, her running mate, uh, elected as second seat in the middle of Northwest. So Marie, because it's probably the first time we've seen her in the campaign in nearly two and a half, two weeks or so, but she could perform quite well. But I think the main talking point out of the debate last night was Peter Casey going to this anti-immigrant tack and talking about restricting migration from the European Union even. And Saoirse McHugh, the Green Party's candidate, had a real standout moment where she took him on and said, you know, millionaires like you, Peter, inciting 
uh, ill feeling towards migrants and paraphrasing now is not a new thing. Um, she said, if you want the attention, why don't you go off and, and, and go to Dancing with the Stars? It was quite a, a, a lively moment in a debate. I think another thing you know, we noticed, you, know, you noticed Brendan Smith, who Fianna Fáil are quite worried about in the middle of the Northwest, really trying his best to break in and put his way into every exchange that was going. Um, but he was kind of pulled up at a funny moment by Dave McCullough when he said, you know, I was the Minister for Agriculture who introduced Harvest 2020, this great agri-food plan, which is a template for growth across the agricultural industry and the food production industry. And Dave McCullough said, yeah, that's fine, but people might remember you as one of the, the ministers in the Fianna Fáil government that handed over the sovereignty of the country and more specifically the Fianna Fáil minister who the day after the worst budget, budget in the history of the state gave the people of Ireland free cheese. Uh, he wasn't too happy to remind them of that particular incident. They look like they might have made a dog's dinner of it again in that constituency, Fianna Fáil. They do. Um, the second we've spoken about in this podcast before, the fact that they ran two candidates in 2014, didn't get either of them elected. They did the same this time, despite some reservations in the party. It's looking dodgy for them. Big ads in the weekend papers for Brendan Smith in the Sunday Independent and the Sunday World, two papers that you would expect to be read in Midlands, Northwest. Um, they are really throwing their effort in behind them. Now, to a certain extent, they say that Peter Casey entering the race has queried the pitch so for the Fianna So the Casey Fall. vote is primarily they, a Fianna Fáil vote. Some people vote, in Fianna believe that that is a Fianna Fáil vote, that the Casey vote, not exclusively, but a vast bulk of it is, 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 is a Fianna Fáil vote. And if he wasn't there, they would get elected. Nevertheless, we could have a strange situation where Fianna Fáil could get two in South, none in North, and one in Dublin. And Fine Gael could get one in South, two in North, and one in Dublin, because the Fine Gael ticket is underperforming going by the polls. And what we're hearing anecdotally in the South, Deirdre Clue and Andrew Doyle are not doing well. If you look in today's papers in the Irish Independent, they're obviously targeting the South East. There's a huge ad from Malcolm Byrne instructing people in certain counties to vote for him. The same day, the same paper this morning, the Examiner has another ad for Billy Keller instructing people in certain areas of the city to vote for him. So you have to believe, given what we've seen there this morning, that they think, Fianna Fáil think they're in a, with a real shot for two in the South. It's been quite a nicely balanced ticket between the two of them. Nice bit of tension between them, not too much. It's a five-seater, remember. So you would wonder if they could get two down there and Fine Gael might only get one. And the Dublin? Dublin, I think the only thing that everybody is saying is that Frances Fitzgerald is probably the safest. You, you, you would be confident saying she would take a seat. And then again, you come down the pecking order. Barry Andrews didn't have a great debate on RT or night. He was, he was quite weak, poor. Actually, wasn't he? he was yeah. quite poor, fluffed a few lines. And interestingly, I, I spoke to one of the other candidates yesterday who was on that debate. And I was at Hustings myself last week for the European movement uh, for the Dublin candidates. And Barry Andrews came in, sat down for 10 minutes and left. And this sort of candidate said that that was actually quite normal, that they've had about 14 or 15 Hustings throughout the campaign for Dublin MEP. And he would come in, sit down and then leave. Perhaps the fact that he didn't partake in all these debates showed a bit of rustiness and he wasn't match fit when it came to Monday night and I thought that showed. Do so you is there a possibility that there's three seats up for grabs? I or think, otherwise yeah, I, Sinn Féin the, should be safe Sinn Féin, enough, like, it, 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 like, France Fitzgerald, you would have to say, probably should be elected. And then after that, you think Barry Andrews, given what we're seeing in the poll, will get elected and then it's a, it's, it's, it's a fair mix. So you have like Kieran Cuff doing well. The Greens would hope to take that seat. Then you have Sinn Féin... Again, they would hope to set, take that seat, but they seem to be a bit rattled by Claire Daly coming onto the pitch. Then you have Claire Daly herself, and then you have Alex White a bit further back. But the process of elimination of that count is going to be particularly interesting because on the left, you have Gillian Bryan from People Before Profit, Rita Harold of, of Solidarity or Socialist Party, and then you have Eilish Ryan of the Workers' Party. So as those 
candidates Gary are eliminated. The Social Democrats Gary, as well. Gary Gannon, but that softer left vote, will that go to the Greens and the Labour Party? That harder left vote, will that go to Claire Daly? And could you see, like, say, for example, in this Business Post poll, you had Rita Harold and Gillian Bryan on a combined 7% between the two of them. Could you automatically add that 7% to Claire Daly? That's going to be one more interesting things of the count. I do wonder, though, I mean, we were in this last week and, you know, there probably are some shifts one way or another. There is, you know, we know that in politics people make, a lot of voters make their decision, you know, in the, in the last week before an election. In a second order... In second order elections of this sort, I wonder how much effect these TV debates have. I don't know what the what the ratings are for them. Pretty, pretty poor, I'd say actually, because I kind of the one on Sunday night was particularly poor. I, I would doubt anybody stayed tuned into that because it was so dull and so so bad. Um, the one thing that perhaps may, I suppose, count in the favour of these debates is that, again, anecdotally speaking, to people who are out canvassing, they say that the public have only just now clicked in to there being an election on Friday and only just now since Saturday and Sunday since the weekend canvas are they starting to ask questions and engage with it so maybe since they've only just paid attention some people to what's going on in the fact that we have a local European and a referendum that maybe they took the time to watch those debates and as we know they're low turnout elections that means that certain types of voters are more likely to vote than others Uh, older voters are more likely to vote more middle class voters are more likely to vote more traditionally loyal party voters are, are more likely to vote so could you see, like, you know, would that mean that the strict division of the constituencies as we're seeing in Ireland South and Midlands Northwest, for example, could that benefit the two bigger parties because their core will come out to vote? Another change we've seen in recent days is that Fine Gael have given extra territory again to Maria Walsh over Mairead McGuinness. They've given her the county of Kildare. And this is all for optics. So they had this big photo shoot of she was down in Kildare on Mairead's lawn, yawn, all that type of stuff. You yeah, know. But uh, it's working well for them, this split and this attempt to manufacture a row. And I think it will be interesting to see if the Fianna Fáil division works in the south and the Fine Gael division works in the north, I think, for electoral nerds, that's going to be one to watch. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's great for nerds. I just wonder about, you know, finally, for you know, for the general the general population, and they watch this stuff, and you're kind of, the media coverage is constrained by this requirement to list off every candidate in the Europeans. Uh, you know, you, you listen to Marion Finuc and wheezing her way through 22 candidates in, in Ireland South, you know, uh, you know, resentfully li- reading, out, reading out the list all the way down. Or I was listening to this bizarre news report on Morning Ireland this morning of last night's debate, which managed to do a report and debate without mentioning one of the candidates, because if you mentioned one, you were presumably going to have to mention 15. It's all a bit odd. It is, it? it is odd. And I don't think it's actually quite good for the way these elections are run, because RT have just given up on covering local elections. They just don't do it. Because if you take what you've spoken about there at the Europeans, that you name one, you have to name all 20. They can't go into, you know, the Ennis Ward and Clare County Council and do a kind of a pen pick of a candidate running and what the local issues are in Ennis. Because then you have to list off everybody else running in that particular ward. It is slightly ridiculous. And it's detrimental to the coverage of these elections. You need to go back and have a look at that. They do. And I think the funny thing is, is you're sensing a kind of a real desire amongst people in the political system to look fresh at how it's all structured. Like we've talked, uh, you've talked in the podcast before about councillors and their pay and their conditions. And I think it's kind of really coming home to people that who work in politics anyway, that perhaps they need to go back and reorder the way this is done entirely to give more uh, power to councillors, reassess, not going to say they're going to do this, reassess the role of a TD, because there is a kind of acknowledgement amongst all politicians now that that nobody wants to do their job, that the calibre of candidates coming in 
is not what it should be and there consequently will have a knock-on effect to the way our parliament and our government works. Yeah, and Cathy Jordan has a good piece about that actually on the opinion page today. I'd recommend it to people and it looks both at the, how little power these councillors have and also what kind of work they are actually doing a lot of the time when they talk about the work they're doing, which is basically clientelism yeah, of the lowest, and, and lowest we, kind. And we spoke about in the last podcast, you know, this emerging, it's not a trend, I wouldn't call it a trend, but it's an emerging factor that there is a kind of almost a professionalisation of politics. You get younger uh, people coming in to work for the party apparatus in Leinster House and being dispatched down to run in county councils to probably coming back to Leinster House with a view and that has backfired in other systems such as Westminster where it breeds resentment. Uh, finally, uh, because we're not constrained like RTE by if we mention one councillor we have to mention them all. So Maria Bailey, uh, Fianna, Fine Gael councillor and candidate in Dunleary uh, who's taking a, uh, a case for damages. Uh, it doesn't seem to be doing her much good on the on the campaign. No, she is taking a case against the Dean Hotel on Harcourt Street for falling out of a, a swing in the premises and I think you know, she's obviously entitled to, to, to take this case but politically it is not doesn't seem to be the wisest thing in the world in the face of it given that Fine Gael would see itself as the party of small business. The cost of insurance is, is a massive problem for small businesses. We've heard it again and again in broadcast debates in the media about small businesses having to close, having to curtail their business because of the insurance premiums they're paying and yet we have a government TD taking a business to court over this particular issue. It doesn't look great and they were taken to task by Michael McDowell and the Shannon yesterday in quite an entertaining contribution. Paul Howard, uh, a.k.a. Ross Carroll Kelly, tweeted yesterday that what Maria Bailey gains on the swings she may lose in the Glenagiri roundabout. She may just... And I, 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 I just wonder if, if there are people elsewhere in the party looking at the coverage. It's in the end, though, in the last few days, and perhaps maybe might have a word in, in, in Maria's ear, and we may see this take a different route than she may have anticipated. OK, thanks for that, Fiac. Stick with us. We're going to be discussing politics and climate change. You're listening to The Irish Times. Now, as we mentioned already, opinion polls are indicating a resurgent vote for the Green Party in Friday's elections, perhaps returning it close to the levels of support which the party enjoyed before the financial crash. But if this does turn out to be the case, what impact, if any, will it have on Ireland's policies on addressing the climate crisis, which even Leo Varadkar has described as laggardly? To uh, discuss this, I'm joined uh, by Fia Kelly, who's still with us. Saeed O'Neill is a PhD candidate in political philosophy. She lectures occasionally in environmental politics in UCD. She was a Green Party member on Dublin City Council for five years in the 1990s before going on to work for a number of environmental organisations and she's published work in the journal Working Notes recently on the failure of Irish climate policy since the financial crash. She's actively involved with Friends of the Irish Environment which is a grassroots environmental organisation and she also acts as an advisor to Independence for Change. Sive, you're very busy. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, also on the line is Gavin Daly. Gavin works with the European Observation Network for Territorial Development and Cohesion. It's based in Luxembourg and and he has led a number of major European studies on territorial development and spatial planning. He formerly worked as a special advisor to the Irish government back, I think, Gavin, in 2009-2010. You were working for Kieran Cuff on planning policy and sustainable transport and climate change. Uh, he was on the planning advisory committee of the National Asset Management Agency in 2010. But the main reason uh, we have you on today, Gavin, is because of a very interesting blog post you wrote about Project Ireland 2040, which is the government's spatial plan for the next generation in this country and you're very critical of that plan I think in fact it's fair to say that there's no way that that plan could be implemented in its proposed form and meet any of the climate change objectives we need to get to well yeah I think uh, thanks for having me on yeah I think the purpose of the the, the blog post was effectively just to articulate and highlight what I would see as the the central contradiction of, of, the, of the Project Ireland 2040 strategy which is effectively to 
increase the population of Ireland by 1.1 million people, 500,000 new houses, 650,000 new jobs, while at the same time reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of the country by 80%. So I, I think I was I was I think what what kind of prompted me to write the blog post was at the time that these targets these rather stupendous targets were near universally greeted as a, as a good thing, and that's not necessary to say say they aren't. But there was very little debate uh, as to the provenance of these targets and how they these population targets how they actually came about. I think when you dig into it, you find that it was um, they were very much supported and backed up by an ESRI study, which which looked at, which basically projected a three percent annual compound growth from from now to the foreseeable future, uh, which has become somewhat of an article of faith in which economies is three percent this three percent growth number, which would effectively mean the near doubling of the Irish economy in the next twenty three years. So I was just curious to see how, how that how that could could be reconciled with uh, an emissions reduction target of eighty percent, and, that's, and that, that was that led me to to write the blog post. Because Ireland twenty forty essentially it says you know that the country um, will have if these targets are met one point one million extra people by twenty forty six hundred and sixty thousand extra jobs five hundred thousand new homes uh, most of that population growth will be driven by migration uh, it would really transformed the country in, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, and, I mean, you're quite right. It, it seems to be sort of unquestioning. But if you put those numbers against what the, the, uh, the emissions would be, uh, there's, you can't avoid having an increase in emissions, can you, really? No, I think the, the assumption is that we can decouple this growth as the economy expands exponentially, which places almost implausible expectations on technological efficiency to achieve these. Really, I mean, if there's, there's been some studies done by various academics on this, and if you look at, for example, the, the work of Tim Jackson, you would, you would find that effectively every unit of economic output would have to have a reduction of 130 times the carbon intensity. Even other, other, other analysis puts it at, at, at close to zero. So to achieve those type of population and growth rates, economic growth rates, which population growth rates are based on the economic underlying economic growth rates, the assumption of 3% annual growth, uh, you're effectively in into a situation where uh, whereby every unit of economic output would have to almost be close to zero in, in, in greenhouse gas emission intensity. And that's even leaving aside the fact that those those projections are based on agriculture being ring-fenced and excluded from the, the emissions uh, target. So effectively, it's the entire burden will be placed on energy, transport, and, and building, the so-called egg-bed sectors. Um, and then, obviously, then you layer on top of that the fact that it's very much Project Ireland, Ireland 2040 is very much a business-as-usual strategy, where it's, it's, it's predicated on airport expansion, it's predicated on, on um, motorway expansion, significant, huge, huge investment in roads and, and such uh, fossil fuel-intensive infrastructure. So I think the, the reason that prompted me to write it was that there's that fundamental contradiction at the heart of it, and it's very difficult to see how those two things could be reconciled. Saif, to what extent do you do you agree with that? And to what extent am I right in being deeply cynical about the Irish political establishment when it talks about taking climate change seriously on the one hand while saying, but that doesn't include beef farming or that doesn't include this or it doesn't include that on the other? Uh, am I right to be cynical? Um, <laughs> well, for a start, I don't think many of the major political parties really understand the um, kind of physical uh, problem that we're dealing with when it comes to emissions and growth, economic growth. As Gavin has so eloquently explained it, and I agree with him completely, there is a fundamental contradiction, um, you know, um, in, in trying to aspire to economic growth that's based on 
increased physical output per annum, steady increases in physical output and consumption, and at the same time, the requirement to reduce emissions um, per unit and also, you know, uh, to bring emissions down below 1990 levels. So that's absolute and relative emissions reduction per unit of GDP. It's physically impossible without a kind of technological miracles and, as you mentioned earlier, some degree of magical thinking. And I don't think that the Fine Gael and, and Fianna Fáil parties in particular have, have really um, studied these issues in detail enough to understand the fundamental contradictions. So you don't reduce emissions with nice flowery language. You don't reduce it with policies. You reduce it with actions that actually result in actual emissions reductions. You're talking about a kind of a physical, it's, it's like a problem of physics and chemistry we're dealing with here. So we have to actually take actual steps. And in the case of Ireland, the steps that are required are steps of withdrawing and changing policies that we're currently, you know, uh, uh, embracing wholeheartedly. Roads development, uh, increased agricultural output uh, and expansion of the dairy industry in particular. So the, the so, so Gavin is completely right. It's an implausible expectation that technology can actually miraculously appear on the landscape to, to sort of uh, allow us to continue to grow in in economic output and at the same time reduce emissions. Now, the problem politically is, well, at what, what, what do politicians do about that? Because you've got the physics of it, you've got the, the understanding that we have 12 years to reduce emissions by about 50% if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees. What can the political system do? And the first thing to recognise is that the political system as a whole, all political parties and all institutions within our political system, because it's not just about the elected representatives, it's also about the bureaucracies and the various state bodies uh, that have functions relating to these things. They have to recognise that we need a complete paradigm shift. We need a complete paradigm shift. So all of our efforts need to be redirected towards uh, policies that reduce emissions and increase the amount of, um, I suppose, uh, rewilding and, you know, um, the the cultivation of biodiversity and all our land use practices. So it's, it's not about not doing some things. It's about changing the way they do them to have different results. So we can have farming. We have to have food production. But we need to be farming and producing food in a way that supports wildlife, supports nature, supports restoration of ecosystems and supports uh, diversification so that farmers themselves aren't actually relying on one type of product in order to get a sustainable income. And these issues are really, really complex. They cut across all the kind of uh, standard uh, uh, political challenges that, that rural communities and agriculture communities or are already facing. Um, but yet the political system needs to embrace carbon reduction and sequestration alongside of that. And that is very, very difficult. And I don't think they have really uh, embraced the challenge today. And I just wonder, Fiat, listening to that, you know, what are the incentives for the current political system or current candidates for elected office to, to change in the way that Sive and Gavin are talking about? Or the incentives currently seem to be encouraging them to uh, emit a certain amount of hot air uh, and be very aspirational, but actually to avoid tough decisions. I was thinking, I was looking particularly at the very dull um, Ireland South debate on Sunday night, when the majority of the candidates just, you know, tried to slalom them around any any difficult questions for the, for for agriculture and agri-foods in particular. They'll only react, I suppose, when they believe that it's in their electoral interest to do so. So I think Friday will be interesting that this green wave we spoke about before, how big it is, the magnitude of it, where it's focused if they believe that voters are now taking climate change seriously and want the political system to act upon what they believe needs to be done, I think that is when you will see politics react in a certain way. It may not be 
in the way that Saiva said, but they may feel they have to do something. So I think for now, they probably have largely settled on the idea of a carbon tax as the thing that they think needs to be done now. And that would probably be the first port of call. That would be the first action you will probably see over the next year in a bit in terms of... And we're already actual, well behind on yeah, carbon yeah, tax. In terms of actual action being taken, in terms of this decision being made in a budget, that is probably the one that will take place over the next three years. The rest of what we will see will be promises for a five, six year time span, as you say, you and then there's a, you know, is that followed through? Is that commitment kept to? Do they follow through on a promise to choose carbon budgeting, for example? But I think in terms of specific actions that can have an, uh, an effect on people's behaviour, they seem to have already settled on the carbon tax as the thing, and that will be the thing that is done. And is that enough, Gavin? Uh, no, in short. Um, but um, I mean, I think it's, it's always interesting that an upsurge of green uh, popular opinion normally normally occurs when the economy is doing well. We, we saw the same in, in 2005 to pre-2007. We're, we're seeing the same now. Um, and uh, effectively, it's seen as a, as kind of a, a discretionary add-on to the kind of political basket of people's of people's opinions and, and views. And right now, it's very it's a very hot topic in in the media with the Extinction Rebellion, with the, the various uh, the declaration of a climate emergency. But really, a declaration of a climate emergency really requires the place to place to drop everything and place the place the economy onto a wartime footing, effectively, which is what many people are calling for. And you don't get the impression that this is this this emergency is 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 a real emergency. Um, if you were, you would you would effectively uh, move past kind of technocratic responses to to uh, to climate change, which I I would I would see the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change largely being uh, to very radical and fundamental shifts. But I can see obviously the, from the political perspective, and it's the same for green for the for, for the Green Party. Um, it's very difficult to sell such a message to an electorate and, and, and get elected. Um, that's why, obviously, green, green politics embraces a kind of eco-modernization approach. Green growth, we can have growth; it can be green. But there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence suggests that's just simply not going to to cut it. So I think this is something. I I think it's it's not enough. But I don't th- I see that we're locked into a paradigm right now that it's very difficult for us to 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 extricate ourselves from, and. Um, Unfortunately, that's just the nature. And, and can of, I, and can I just know. follow up with one question to you on that? Do you think I, I kind of I almost think I'm hearing you saying that there's a kind of there's a feeling that the Green Party themselves are pulling their punches? And you know, Eamon Ryan, we've had we had him in a few weeks ago, and he sort of paints a sort of a, a golden picture of a sort of a, a revitalized way of life in our in our small towns, a way of a way of bringing you know green greener practices, even with, with the with the planning disasters we've had over the years, with you know dispersed um, development and and all that kind of stuff. But is the reality what you're saying is that this is much harsher, and there are, if, if it's harsher, there's going to be losers as well as winners, aren't there? There is. There's going to be there's going to be winners and losers, uh, and uh, the question is how you how you address those losers in terms of a just tradition and all the rest. But many things what Eamon, Eamon Ryan and the Green Party would say are, are correct insofar as there there is there is a potentially better way of being uh, through this type of politics. But ultimately, in the short term, there's going to be there's going to be some quite difficult changes for people. So, for example, you saw the the debate, the media debate around the closure of of the potential closure of some of the peat fire power stations in 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 the Midlands, which was which was which was which was very heated around the job losses. And we're going to have. I mean, when 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 you hear Richard Bruton or or Fishok talk about revolutionary change or this being the defining issue of our time, effectively that means some particularly revolutionary changes, which are going to. Um, 
discombobulate certain sectors of society and we have to think of ways of softening that softening that blow in many ways in terms of transition to different ways of, of, of doing things and those things are very very difficult to achieve while you're locked into a growth paradigm whereby you have to and this is a global issue this is way beyond Ireland which makes it even more difficult mm. and more, almost a more insoluble problem is the fact that no country is going to commit to a, a what you might call a degrowth agenda um, while while the, the general global paradigm is 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 a growth paradigm, so it's it's a, it's a very very difficult agenda to to push along and to make it politically popular, so people can grasp onto it and say, "This is something I want to sign up to, and this is something that I want to see achieved." What do you think about that side? There is this paradox, it seems to me, that we are, uh, if you believe the overwhelming scientific evidence, which personally I do, we are facing the greatest existential threat in the history of the human race coming down a train track at us and due to hit us uh, in the next within the next generation. Um, you have that on the one side, on the other side, you still have, I think, a sort of perception that this is seen as a kind of middle-class indulgence at times of prosperity. What's the <laughs> distinction? There's a kind of a weird okay. distinction there, isn't Well, there? Uh, interestingly, there's quite a lot of empirical evidence to show across European countries, uh, for instance, that there is a portion of the, the, the political culture that has made a kind of permanent shift towards a kind of more, uh, you know, less materialistic um, um, way of life so that people aren't necessarily voting just to, you know, improve their economic conditions, they're concerned about well-being in a general sense, they're concerned about community, they're concerned about environment and so that kind of uh, dematerialised form of politics um, has taken shape and you can see that in the way that while green, the green vote across Europe has fluctuated over the years it hasn't disappeared. It's actually quite solid, uh, you know, somewhere between 5 and 10% in most European countries and that is likely to grow as the ecological challenges and it's a kind of more of a predicament in some ways because we can't necessarily fix it but we have to live with it we have to manage it and we certainly have to stop making it worse um, I mean I've been involved in politics for over 25 years and I can tell you that elected politicians can make a difference to a lot of these things elected politicians even our local authority councillors who have very little power they control budgets they control specific developments they pass development plans and they, they make policies across a range of issues they have the power to actually prioritise the environment and community well-being over short-term economic interests it's difficult. It's difficult in places where there is uh, unemployment and low levels of economic growth and where you have the problems of, you know, all this kind of dispersed development that are very, very difficult to correct. Um, but certainly in the, in the town I live in, Kilkenny, for example, there is a public appetite for green policies that would actually make it easier for people to cycle to work and to school. That would make it, um, you know, that, that would kind of green up the city and make it a more a beautiful space for people to live in and work in, as opposed to a place that people simply drive through and generating pollution. Now, it, it's true that those kinds of policies, while they would there would be an appetite for them and the Greens are in a position, hopefully, if they get elected to actually push those policies policies, they don't, they would maybe take a chunk of about 5, 10, 15 percent off the emissions profile in any given community. So I'm not trying to pretend that those policies correct the bigger thing. Um, and those those issues are extremely difficult to challenge. And they can only be really addressed at a macroeconomic level and at a multilateral level between countries. Oh, is that the case at, yeah. at a European level then? Absolutely. Um, is that Absolutely. perhaps more important than the national yes, level? Yes. And that's where that kind of uh, ecological growth or that eco-modernisation paradigm needs to be really challenged. So the European, the European Union is very unique in some ways because it's a trading block. Um, there's no, no tariffs. It's, it's all about promoting competition and trading between countries and free movement of goods and labour and people and so on. 
But it also contains uh, provisions in the European treaties that actually make the promotion of sustainable uh, development and objectives. So everything in the European Union has to be balanced against these environmental imperatives. And I think the European Union has come up to its limit in terms of what it can actually achieve trying to reconcile those two things. And it's going to have to start looking at models of economic development that are more local, less environmentally impactful, less relying on trade and um, offsetting one thing against another thing somewhere else and uh, looking closely at its trade policies with other countries, trying to you know, embrace the, the concept of a circular economy across all of its uh, trading activities as well as internally in the internal market. You see, I, I do wonder, Fiak, Mark Paul of our business department had a column on this subject the other day and he was talking about how Take carbon tax, for example, how there are winners and losers in carbon tax and that people who uh, are less well off are more likely to have less disposable income or more likely to be hit hard. But there are also, um, it strikes me, looking at you know the development of the country over the last 20 or 30 years, there are people in certain geographical areas as well as in certain socioeconomic categories who are likely to be harder hit, the, um, harder hit by carbon tax. And we saw the kind of outcome of those kinds of politics and what happened with France and, France and the Gilets Jaunes. It was, a speci- it was specifically largely driven by people who lived in the exurbs which have sprung up around our cities in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Years, very dependent on the car to get around, not necessarily on high incomes, not necessarily unemployed, but certainly not not on particularly high incomes. So they're affected by you know you know relatively small changes to their disposable income. You could see exactly that same kind of demographic in Ireland being hit badly by some of these proposals. Yeah, and it's almost like you get a taste of that debate. Um, say, for example, most years now, the Department of Finance for the last few years it, it always does publishes tax strategy papers and it outlines the menu of options available to the government to increase taxation or decrease taxation as it's always in the budget. And one of the aspects that has repeatedly been um, mentioned in those papers and it's mentioned in the it's mentioned everywhere when it comes to climate action is at a minimum the equalisation of diesel and petrol prices. That on the face of it seems like a small action, but when that is mentioned, you see rural Ireland really get up in arms. Rural rural representative saying you can't do that because the diesel car is what the main mode of transportation for people outside the cities because they don't have the public transport links they don't they don't live too close with dart lewis a proper cycle track anything like that and the diesel car will hit them and a rise in diesel will hit them in the pocket and i think that is a flavor of that debate you're talking about when it comes to carbon tax those people who rely on the car for their main mode of transportation I think that is going to be the issue with the carbon tax. How do you manage that? And how do you manage that, particularly at a time when rural Ireland already feels that it is being left behind and you have a main party that is vulnerable to its standing in rural Ireland and a main opposition party that believes its main strength is standing up for rural Ireland. That's going to be an interesting dynamic. I mean, Gavin, I uh, I was watching one of the political um, debates for the European Parliament, I think it was the Dublin one the other day, and there were a couple of candidates, including Kieran Cough, uh, saying it would be a great idea to have free public transport. And it would be a great idea for me to have free public transport because I'm lucky enough to live pretty close to the city. I can walk to work, I can cycle to work, I've got excellent public transport. Making it free would increase my quality of life even further, and I would be being subsidised by people who are making less than me or living in more difficult circumstances. That's exactly the kind of problem, isn't it, with those kind of proposals? Yeah, I think, I mean, in the, in the context of Ireland, I mean, um, some, some um, academics talk about this concept of carbon lock-in, which creates it's this kind of uh, path dependency, which and 
in terms of our emissions profile, which is very specific to us in terms of the sprawl that we've allowed over the last uh, 20, 30 years, which I've been writing about quite a lot. And um, also our, our emissions profile from agriculture, which is somewhat the sacred cow and, and it's, it's ring fence from any kind of uh, emissions reductions. And exactly, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head. We, 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 we face, because of our past mistakes, very, very significant problems in terms of exactly that, in terms of, of, of a carbon tax. Which, which is a huge, almost almost a quarter of our population are just entirely car dependent. And providing public transport to them is almost impossible. Uh, we saw the debate recently about um, the, the cost of, of the national broadband plant, which is, which runs to 3 billion, and rolling out service, services to everybody's door. And it would be obviously impossible for us to roll out similar services to every, everybody's door in Ireland. So, And the difficult from a political perspective is that these are the, um, these are the, the political heartlands of Conservative Ireland, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. We saw the the goodies which have been showered on the so-called rural Ireland over the last few weeks, uh, in terms of uh, voting intentions and forthcoming elections. So there is a huge that is a huge huge challenge. Is the fact that we have we have created this situation for for ourselves by allowing such sprawling development patterns, which makes mitigation and climate mitigation even more difficult than it already was. And Slive, I mean, you, as I said at the outset, um, you're advising independence for change. Um, mm. Mm. So presumably, given their political perspective as a grouping of, of left-wing TDs, that's top of their agenda. Well, uh, the uh, Thomas Pringle, the TD who's on the Joint Oireachtas Committee, was opposed to the carbon tax and he voted against the finance chapter of the Joint Oireachtas Committee's report. But it's important, and I know his thinking on this quite well, that his concern is really that the uh, there is no guarantee, no matter what the other parties might commit to in the Joint Oireachtas report, that the government wouldn't slap a tax on without actually reimbursing uh, rural communities in any way and without any kind of guarantee he wasn't prepared to support. Now, there's a few different options that were considered by the committee in terms of recycling the revenues. But the important point is that there was all party agreement that the revenues would be recycled, that they wouldn't actually go into the general exchequer like, uh, you know, diesel and uh, petrol. uh, Well, I do wonder how that works. I mean, Thomas Pringles from Kitty Bags, I know Mm. that part of Donegal quite well. Mm. And in fact, I was looking at uh, I was looking at a national map of the country just last week and. West Donegal, where Thomas Pringle lives, uh, featured in it because it showed the parts of the country where people commute the longest, where their commuting times are the longest. And Kitty Beggs was in that, was in one of the the, the ones where where that was quite a high proportion of the population. And I know from around there, you know, everybody relies on a car and they spend hours in their cars going around the place. Absolutely. So they are going to have to pay more carbon tax. So if they just get a flat check back, uh, the same check as I get, I'm still the winner. Yes, 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 absolutely. So one of the things that he he was most concerned about was to ensure that uh, rural uh, and isolated parts of the country would would be prioritised in terms of improved public services. Now, we we got that text into the report, but it's very unlikely that the government will actually take heed of that particular you know, measure. Um, the the important thing is, and just this is worth recalling that Thomas would never <laughs> uh, shout about this from the rooftops. But Thomas actually drives an EV now, and the uh, mileage and the range that is possible in an EV makes it possible for somebody living in Killybegs who works in Dublin to actually drive an EV. Okay, so the range is now uh, something that makes it possible for people with long commutes to actually embrace EVs. So for rural communities, electric vehicles are definitely going to be one part of the solution. Um, they, um, 
they, they don't solve the government's problem in terms of revenues, reliable revenues in terms of tax, uh, you know, from the, the excise duties. But they definitely deal with the emissions issue as long as the power that's being generated comes from renewable sources. So that's another part of it. Um, the other thing is for rural communities in Donegal and the west of Ireland generally, the whole thing about um, just transition has to involve you know, using the opportunity of this transition to actually generate rural employment and to generate more uh, economic activity around the resources that can be harvested sustainably, whether that's in the seas or on the land or in new innovation, new social innovation projects in in, in the towns and villages. And what we're going to need is uh, access to finance. We're going to need access to um, ways of working that are new and that don't generate emissions. Well, broadband is very, very important. But one of the concerns I have about the rural broadband scheme is that the blank check that the government have effectively written could actually lead to another spurt in um, one-off housing. Because if it's... If it's cheaper to build and if it's possible to build outside of towns and cities, people will do that. It's logical. So unless we have very tight planning rules, we will end up seeing a new phase of one-off dispersed rural housing as a result of the fact that broadband will go everywhere. So you think this idea Mm. of having Mm. every house connected in rural Ireland is is not the way to go? That perhaps the focus, the concentration of the connectivity on towns and areas so that would allow for better spatial planning? Well, my personal view is that, you know, supplying broadband to existing dwellings is is absolutely necessary. But to, to, to give the guarantee to any future development could actually lead to more sprawl because it's always going to be cheaper to build outside of towns and villages than inside them. And our towns and villages are suffering. I mean, nobody would be Kevin be the best person to describe this, you know, from a planning point of view. But our spatial planning problems in Ireland and our inability to manage ourselves and to manage our land resources properly and sustainably have actually given rise to huge environmental problems that are very difficult to reverse because you're creating these incumbents, you're creating this lock-in that Gavin has described, and you're creating a political constituency that doesn't want change. So the more we supply and cater to this desire to have um, cheap housing because we haven't found a way of doing it cheaply in towns and villages and in cities. Um, the, the more we are building problems that we're going to uh, have, a, have legacies, essentially, environmental legacies into the future. I just and I would hate I, to see broadband be part of that. It I just need wonder, to be, from yeah. what we know of the history of the Irish political system and the way it works, Fiac, we know the power of these local interests as represented. For example, I can imagine, I can think of many independent rural TDs uh, who, perhaps unlike Thomas Pringle, would be deeply opposed to to a lot of what Sive is talking about there. Um, so even if there is a constituency for um, for pro-green policies, there's also a constituency for what I suppose you could call anti-green policies, certainly represented by the Healy Ray brothers, for example, on the Dáil. Absolutely, and we saw some of that the last time, well, the only time the Greens have been in government between 2007 2011, there was a huge rural constituency within Fianna Fáil that kicked back against many proposals they championed at the time. And I think the reason perhaps we haven't seen that kickback along the French lines, and I'm not saying we're going to see it at, of that scale, is that the Greens haven't been in government since then to enact these policies. We have governments, first of all, trying to get us, get us through the economic crisis, then trying to bring us out the far side, and only now is the attention really turning to green policies. And the interesting thing will be to see if there is a coalition. The Greens go into coalition, they probably will after the next government. They will probably have to go in with, they will have to go in with one of the big parties. And what is the dynamic between them and the larger parties? 
when they try to really affect this change. Because if Imran's position is, which it is, like everybody in the Green Movement, that there is a, a certain period of time in which this climate emergency has to be addressed, they have to go into government. You, it is no use saying at the next election, vote Green, we will help turn the ship around, then go, actually, I'm going to sit it out. So they will be in government probably after the next election. And the dynamic between the Green Party and the policies they want to implement and the aggressiveness with which the leadership of the main party in that coalition pursued their agenda is going to be one of the interesting things. Because that government... More likely, you could easily envisage a situation where there is a Fianna Fáil-led government with the Green Party as a component of it, relying on the support of the Healy Rays, the Matty McGraths, that rural bloc of independents who won't be in favour of many of these policies. Um, that sounds pretty incoherent as a as a blueprint for policy, Gavin. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like it brings it brings back certain nightmares. Um, but uh, it's. Um, yeah, look, it's it's it, this, this is always going to be the challenge of, of coalition government in terms of where the, the balance lies and uh, how serious Fine Gael are are, are, are are the mainstream party of Fianna Fáil and that maybe would take these uh, with these issues. Obviously, there's no guarantee that the Green Party would 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 be in government next time next time round. Obviously, it depends on the numbers, but um, yeah, that would be a very um, difficult scenario to manage, and it would all depend on. Yeah, how seriously these issues are going to be taken by the mainstream parties in terms of the issues that Saif has just outlined there in terms of, of, of the, the, the kickback that there will be on, on green policies because it's no doubt that regardless of how you design carbon tax or the various issues and incentives for, 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 for a green change, there's going to be um, there's, a, there's a significant constituency in Ireland um, who, 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 are, who, are, who are opposed to green, green policies. I mean, for example, one of the, one of the, the main issues that we've, we've faced in terms of um, if, for example, there's going to be a, a shift to electric vehicles uh, to, to address some of these transport conundrums that we face, one of the main issues, as I've just out, outlined there, is how, where are we going to get energy from? And one of the main kickbacks from against renewable energy projects has become from, from rural Ireland itself in terms of the um, the impact that turbines have on, on, on people's dwellings because we have such a sprawling settlement pattern. There's actually very few places in Ireland which are more than 500 metres from somebody's home. So... Um, there's, I think one of the key, one of the main issues with there's no there's, there's no simple solutions to these to these issues. Really, what we end up doing is moving the problem around mm. somewhat. And there's always there's, there's always there's always a, a, a double-edged sword in, in addressing a lot of these issues. Can I just ask you one last question in relation to your anti-growthism? There, you know, um, is all growth bad in that sense? I think I remember seeing a statistic that there's more yoga trainers than steel workers in the United States now. There are certain kinds of economic activities that don't don't contribute as much emissions. Not quite sure how much emissions yoga, yoga contributes, but less than steel working, I'd say, anyway. Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm anti-growthism. It depends how we define growth. I mean, there's been, ever since over the last 30 years, ever since the 1970s, the early 1970s, there's been this ongoing debate about what, what the nature of growth is. And obviously, growth in our contemporary society means gross domestic product, GDP, which basically is the total amount of goods and services produced by, by, an, by, by, an, by an economy. And there is a, a plethora of literature, even from Joseph Stiglitz, uh, the, Nobel, the Nobel laureate, uh, who did a report back in probably 10 years ago for Sarkozy, um, on, on how the fact that this mismeasures mis- every aspect of our lives. So the problem the problem is is, is, is not growth. Growth has is, is become synonymous to progress. Progress is, is, is important, but it depends. GDP doesn't necessarily mean progress. A lot of what we measure in GDP is effectively um, is effectively pollution and a lot of things which 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 uh, which contributes to the, to the to to national growth, but it's is an externality to the environment which we don't cost in. So no, not all growth is not is is not bad. It depends how you define growth. 
and that is the key existential problem that we that we need to address. And I think one is which in our current contemporary paradigm is is very difficult to resolve. Yeah, one of the I think from a policy point of view and an action point of view, the the, the next three, four, or five years, if government and political parties are serious about bringing about this change, is the mix of policy proposals they introduce to affect this change. So. So I was talking about electric vehicles there and the government's climate action plan to be published in the, the weeks ahead has a target of they want 700,000 private electric vehicles on the road by 2030. How do you bring that about in a situation for where people you want to make about change are probably, as you say, you people from those, they're not the, 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 the richest people in Ireland, they're not on the, the highest incomes. They probably drive a second-hand car because they can't afford a new car, therefore they probably drive... For, by uh, drive a diesel car because they bought it. That was like five years ago. So you're now going to are you going to change the motor tax and VRT regime to make it more punish them for driving diesel cars? Is that the way you get them out of the cars, or do you introduce an incentive through a scrappage scheme, an incentive to buy EVs? Those are the big issues that are going to have to be faced. You know, does that have a cost in the exchequer if it's an incentive scheme? Do you get extra? Like, are you going to take a revenue hit because you're going to incentivize cars that aren't going to eat up as much diesel and petrol, and that's going to have a hit in excise? Those are the big decisions that have to be taken over the next few years. I I love to hear you describe it like that, actually, because that's what what I think of as climate politics. So we Mm. think we think about environmental politics in terms of, you know, exactly this kind of difficulty and kind of reconciling those different objectives. And that's what our political system now needs to focus on, because those are political questions about who to reward and who to punish and how How, to do it fairly. How do you tell someone you have to rip out your boiler and put in this? It's not easy. And the job of political actors in this system is to build consensus and build support for the policies that are going to actually be needed. And these aren't just wishy-washy dream policies that uh, people like Gavin and myself are are promoting. These are legal requirements. So we have a legal requirement to reduce our emissions um, and that legal requirement to reduce them by whatever it is, by 30% by 2030, is likely to increase dramatically because the EU's own targets aren't actually ambitious enough. Uh, Currently, uh, Friends of the Irish Environment, a group that both Gavin and I are associated with, are taking a legal action against the government. And if we're successful, the government will have to probably go back and redraw its national mitigation plan. The minister is also under pressure to actually increase the ambition of his climate policies that he's going to produce in all a government plan shortly. And, you know, so the pressure is building from below on the political system to respond. And there is a public appetite for change. There is a huge groundswell of uh, activism and youth movements getting on board with the Fridays for Future striking and so on. But I was just going to make one other point, which is that no matter how you measure growth and no matter how you uh, decide on your overall economic strategy, it is an imperative, ecological imperative, that we dematerialise our economies. So we have to uh, reduce our carbon dioxide emissions by uh, eventually nearly 100% by 2050, but very drastically in the short term. We're going to also have to reduce our consumption of non-renewable resources. And that includes timber as well, actually, because while timber is renewable, it's not um, infinitely renewable in the sense that it takes a long time for timber to grow. So we have to com- we need a complete overhaul of our you know, environmental strategies and our relationship with nature and our national resources. And this is something that environmentalists have been banging on about for 40 or 50 years. So in a sense, a lot of the thinking is out there. It's already done. It's already been thought through. And a lot of the the tools and strategies and policies are there um, for the political system to actually look into, read themselves up on and actually embrace. And uh, so I'm, su- I'm just hoping that they will because uh, time is of the essence and we need them to start acting now. On that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Saif, Gavin and to Fiat for coming in.
today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to JJ Vernon on the desk. Thanks to all of you who've been in touch with me about the podcast in recent weeks. Those messages are always welcome. I do my best to reply to them all. You can get me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me even more easily on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 